Well, as you know, last, last Wednesday we looked at Romans chapter 12, verse 2, and the command that the Apostle Paul gives to the Roman church that not only are they to present their bodies as a living and acceptable sacrifice, as an act of worship, but they were to resist being conformed to this world and instead they were to be transformed through the renewing of their minds. Well, in the beginning of that verse, verse 2, we had that very important statement, that exhortation by the Apostle Paul to not be transformed to this world, not be conformed to the things of this world. Just this past week, I heard of an example of this kind of conformity to the world and how close it is even to those who call themselves evangelicals. In one of the largest evangelical churches in the country, a church called North Point Community Church, which is in the suburbs of Atlanta, pastored by a man by the name of Andy Stanley, on January 9th for their worship service, their musical band opened with the music of Led Zeppelin. Led Zeppelin, yeah, that's right, a group that is essentially synonymous with drugs, fornication, all kinds of illegal activities with underage girls, and the list goes on. The occult, even some of you know of that music from your past. And here in an evangelical church that boasts 40,000 members, the music of Led Zeppelin was used to begin the worship service. When asked why he did that, Andy Stanley said, yes, it was the call to worship. So why did we do that? Here's why we did that. Because we have to let the band get things out of their system every once in a while so that they'll play the songs we need them to play. Well, if there is any illustration of conformity to this world, that's it. In fact, this comes from a pastor who said he was ashamed at the testimony of those churches which remained open during the COVID era. He was ashamed at their witness that they dared to meet together despite all the cries for everything to shut down. He plays Led Zeppelin as a call to worship. And that is exactly what Paul warns against. Conformity to this world. He said to the Romans, do not be conformed to this world, but he said, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Now, we noted last week that in that text in Romans chapter 12, verse 2, we saw the present danger, which was the danger of conformity to this world simply by default. We also looked at the persistent need, that ongoing need to be transformed, to be sanctified, to be transformed into the likeness of Jesus. Then we also saw the, the promised outcome. That when that happens, 
we will then be able to know what the will of God is for us in the various situations of our lives. But right in the middle of that text we saw last time, there was an important statement about the means of this transformation. If we are to resist conformity to the world and we are to be transformed to the likeness of Jesus, how does that happen? And Paul states it briefly here in Romans chapter 12. He says that this transformation happens by the renewing of the mind. The renewing of the mind. Now, in this text, Paul does not go into great detail about what that renewal of the mind looks like, and that is what our focus is this evening. And when we talk about the renewal of the mind, how that then leads to transformation to the likeness of Christ, that need that we have, that persistent need, we talk about the discipline of biblical meditation. Biblical meditation. Now when I say that word meditation, obviously it it creates a lot of anxiety on our part. There's a lot of baggage associated with that term. And so it's important right at the very beginning that we set aside these false understandings of meditation and in no way confuse our discussion this evening, our study this evening, with those false notions of meditation. So let's begin and take just a moment to to identify what biblical meditation is not. Biblical meditation, meditation defined by Scripture as we will do this evening, biblical meditation has nothing to do with the kind of meditation that is, that is part of the Eastern religions, part of the transcendental meditation and New Age spirituality. Moreover, when we talk about biblical meditation, we are not to confuse it with what so-called Christian movements have done with it. You have Roman Catholic monasticism being very much tied together with, with meditation. You have this very subjective mystical practice called Lectio Divina, divine reading, which is tied to meditation. That's not what we're talking about. You also have these different movements, whether from the Quakers and, and others branching out into modern-day evangelicalism uh, of this contemplative prayer and spiritual formation. And I want to say at the beginning, that is not what we're talking about when we talk about biblical meditation. But what those false understandings do, and, and, and when we consider how those false understandings have spread, it, it, it identifies for us the importance that we have as we consider the topic of the Christian mind to rightly understand what meditation truly is. Now the problem with these other, these other forms, these dangerous and, and heretical forms of meditation, really comes down to these two things. Number one, in these other forms of meditation, there is, there is the passivity of the mind. The mind is turned off. The, the mind is emptied. The mind is bypassed. The mind is disabled. Or, if it's not turned off, the mind is focused on the wrong things. In some of these forms of false meditation, those who engage in it create their own realities through their own imagination. And their meditation becomes focused 
on their imagined realities and through the power of this positive meditation, seeking to bring those imagined realities into life. Now that's not what we're talking about. So what are we talking about when we talk about biblical meditation? Well, I want to start with some really good definitions of it, and then we'll move into the biblical justification for it, the biblical commands for meditation. We'll see why meditation is such an important discipline for the development of the Christian mind. So what is biblical meditation? David Saxton, in a very helpful book, and I recommend it to you, a book called God's Battle Plan for the Mind, he defines biblical meditation this way. It is, quote, the practice of biblical meditation or the doctrine of Christian thinking. So he takes a very broad statement here to help us understand it in a very big picture kind of way. Biblical meditation is the doctrine of Christian thinking. We need not allow those, those false forms of meditation to, to cause us to avoid this term. Instead, understand that meditation really is the art of Christian thinking, true Christian thinking. When our minds are operating as they ought to operate, as we think God's thoughts after him. That really is biblical meditation. In a more detailed definition, Donald Whitney gives this helpful description. He says, quote, meditation is deep thinking on the truths and spiritual realities revealed in Scripture for the purposes of understanding, application, and prayer. Meditation goes beyond hearing, reading, studying, and even memorizing as a means of taking in God's Word. So more detail here that he gives, and as he points to, he, he, he describes it as deep thinking. It is deep thinking that is focused on spiritual realities, not realities as they seem to me in my intuition, not realities as I define them in my imagination, but realities defined according to Scripture, God's Word, and the purpose of meditation, as he states, is for understanding, application, and communion with God. Perhaps one of the best definitions of meditation comes from J.I. Packer in his helpful book, Knowing God. He describes meditation this way, quote, meditation is the activity of calling to mind and thinking over and dwelling on and applying to oneself the various things that one knows about the works and ways and purposes and promises of God. It is an activity of holy thought, consciously performed in the presence of God, under the eye of God, by the help of God, as a means of communion with God. Its purpose is to clear one's mental and spiritual vision of God and to let His truth make its full and proper impact on one's mind and heart. It is a matter of 
talking to oneself about God and oneself. It is indeed often a matter of arguing with oneself, reasoning oneself out of moods of doubt and unbelief into a clear apprehension of God's power and grace. Its effect is ever to humble us as we contemplate God's greatness and glory and our own littleness and sinfulness and to encourage and reassure us as we contemplate the unsearchable riches of divine mercy displayed in the Lord Jesus Christ. End quote. That is a wonderful description of biblical meditation. Its contents, its purposes. And I want to go a little bit deeper this evening. In fact, what I want to do for the moment is, is go back even a little bit further in history and look to a particular era where the concept of biblical meditation really was an emphasis. It was recognized as, as key to the, to the growth of, of the body of Christ. It's the, the Puritan era. In fact, if there's one era, one time in church history where there was a lot of really good biblical thinking done on this discipline, it was the Puritan era. So I want to give you some definitions here to help us round out our understanding before we turn to the scriptures of the biblical doctrine of meditation. Thomas Manton describes meditation this way. He says, quote, Meditation is a holy exercise of the mind whereby we bring the truths of God to remembrance and do seriously ponder upon them and apply them to ourselves. A Dutch theologian who lived 1635 to 1711 by Wilhelmus Abrakel defined biblical meditation this way. He said this, quote, Spiritual meditation is a religious exercise. It neither consists in idleness, nor is it a passive disposition in which we are but recipients permitting ourselves to be illuminated by the divine perfections and divine mysteries. Instead, It is an activity in which the soul is occupied in reflecting upon these matters, approving them, delighting in them. It is astonished about them and it is quickened by them. Another Puritan, a British nonconformist pastor by the name of Oliver Haywood, defines it this way. He said, Christian meditation is the contemplative and earnest fixing of the mind on the great spiritual realities which the Bible has revealed to us. It should be connected with prayer and the study of Scripture, yet it differs from both. He goes on to say this, Prayer is the conversation of the soul with God, the direct outpouring of its wants and desires before the throne of infinite mercy. The reading of Scripture is the exercise by which the soul seeks to learn God's will and to gather in the communications which God has made of His character and His purposes. But meditation is the soul's conference with itself. It is the set and solemn endeavor of the soul to bring home to itself divine things. And so to revolve, ponder, and digest them, 
as to work their transforming power into every element and faculty of its being. End quote. So understand how the Puritans, and, and, and as we're going to see, how Scripture defines for us meditation. Meditation cannot be simply synonymous with reading the Bible. Now, reading the Bible, as, as we see, is essential. Meditation cannot happen apart from the revealed truths of God. However, meditation is, is a step beyond the mere intake of God's Word. The Puritans believed that meditation was the bridge between Scripture reading and prayer. Just as Haywood had stated, it is that bridge between reading Scripture, having your eyes go over the page, and having the words of Scripture come into your mind, and on the other side, prayer, that is of communing with God. Meditation is this, is this intermediate, is this bridge between those two essential disciplines. So how do they look at it? If we could put it on a, in a picture, you can look at it this way. The reading of Scripture is the intake of truth. It is the intake of God's Word, how He defines reality. In His Word, He has told us how we are to view this world, its promises, and its solutions. On the other hand, prayer is then our conversation with God as we are impacted by His truth. But as we think of meditation and and practice meditation according to the the prescription of Scripture, we we can see it as this bridge between, as, as the truths that are taken in from the Word of God are then pondered, they're digested within us. As J.I. Packer said, it is as if at that point we become the preacher to ourselves of these very truths. And we wrap them within every fiber of our being. The Puritans also believed that meditation was this essential bridge between head knowledge and love for God and willful obedience. And we'll often talk about that and how there is often in in, in our own lives, and and we see it in the lives of others, this this, this disjunction. It it doesn't match up. There's so much that is known, and, and yet so little that is lived and loved. And why is that? And the Puritans would say the reason is that that Christian has not taken those truths through this process of meditation. He has not digested them. He has not been steeped in them. And as a result, there is a disconnect with what he loves, how he loves, and how he lives. In fact, just take that point for just a moment. You can see it in David's life, this this result of of this practice of of meditation. As you look at the, the psalmist in Psalm 42, the psalmist, In Psalm 42, this very well-known psalm, you see the psalmist actually practicing meditation right there on the pages of Scripture. Notice how the psalmist begins preaching to himself. He, he, He notes this, he says, Why are you in despair, my soul? And why have you become disturbed within me? Very real experiences. But notice how he now takes the promises he knows to be true of God and preaches them to himself. 
he takes God's revealed truth and he begins to wrap it in to his, the, the fiber of his being. The, the psalmist continues and, and he's preaching to himself and he says, Hope in God, soul. Hope in God. For I shall again praise him for the help of his presence. And then you see him turning to God as he now no longer addresses his soul, but he addresses God in prayer. Oh my God, my soul is in despair within me. Therefore, I remember you from the land of Jordan and the peaks of Hermon and from, and from Mount Mizar. Deep calls to deep at the sound of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have rolled over me. And then again, he tells himself, the Lord will command his loving kindness in the daytime and his song will be with me in the night, a prayer to the God of my life. You see all of this conversation taking place and this is the practice of meditation. Taking what is true about God, what he has revealed about himself and preaching it to ourselves, saturating our being with these truths in response to all of those longings and despairs of the soul, all of those moments when we feel the pull of the world and we feel the temptation to think according to the old way of life. Meditation is is that discipline then that, that, that takes what God has revealed, responds to that despair, to those temptations, and takes that truth and preaches it to self. Therefore, if we come to a summary definition then of biblical meditation, we could define it with these characteristics. It actively engages the mind. It focuses on the truth of God, His redemptive words and works. It contemplates truth, not just momentarily, but it ponders it. It looks at truth from all angles and applications. And it applies that truth to the will and to the affections so that the whole person is impacted by that truth. And it leads to a life that is changed. And so when you go back to Romans chapter 2 and you see that pressing need, that ongoing, that ongoing exhortation where Paul says, but be transformed By the renewing of your mind, this is what that's all about. The end goal is transformation to the likeness of Christ and how that is achieved through our participation as God empowers us through His truth and by His Spirit. That renewing of the mind is this discipline of meditation. Let's now look at it as it is prescribed in Scripture. This is not just a a doctrine that has been invented by theologians or by the Puritans. This is something that finds its roots very deeply in the texts of Scripture. For example, you could go to a text like like Joshua chapter 1 verse 8, where the Lord appears to Joshua and says to him, this book of the law, speaking of the Pentateuch, the works of Moses, This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do all according to what is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have success. 
Now, what's interesting here is that the Hebrew verb for meditation is, is, is similar to our word for to murmur. To murmur. The, the idea isn't just imagination here. It's, it's murmur. And, and here's the issue at stake there. For, for the Old Testament saint, meditation was, was not some kind of silent thing. It was the actual reading of Scripture. It was the pronunciation of the words on the page with the desired effect that, or desire that that effect then would, would come upon the whole person as all senses would be involved in, in that endeavor. Inherent in this, is this, in this ancient meditation is the, the actual vocalization of Scripture. Of reading it out loud, not just quickly letting the eyes move across the page superficially, going over it until the desired moment where you go down deep, but no, actually stating each and every jot and tittle. One commentator writing of, of this command in Joshua 1 verse 8 to meditate on this book of the law day and night writes this, the phrase implies eager, focused study, free of distractions. The reader's picture, the the reader's posture pictures the text's importance. The reader hunches over it, eyes riveted on every syllable in order not to miss any detail. The posture also mirrors how critical is the law's guidance. Only rigorous reflection can mine its depths. To skim the law is to imperil one's future by missing something crucial. Indeed, it is not simply enough to read it, to think about it, or or even to talk about it. Joshua must be careful to act on it, to put Moses' instructions into practice, to live it out, to give it feet in the real world. That's what it means to meditate. And of course, we can go to the Psalter, the Psalter is filled not only with illustrations of actual meditation, but of commands, of descriptions of the saints of God meditating. Psalm 1 verse 2 says this, But his delight, the blessed man's delight, is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. Psalm 63 verse 6, the psalmist says, when I remember you on my bed, I meditate on you in the night watches. Psalm 77 verses 11 and 12, I shall remember the deeds of the Lord. Surely I will remember your wonders of old. I will meditate on all your work and muse on your deeds. Psalm 111 verse 2, great are the works of the Lord. They are studied. They are studied by all who delight in Him. That's meditation. And then, of course, Psalm 119 is really the the climax of Scripture's teaching on meditation. As again, we see the psalmist practicing what he writes. Psalm 119 verse 15, I will meditate on your precepts and regard your ways. Verse 27, make me understand the way of your precepts so I will meditate on your wonders. Verse 48, and I shall lift up my hands to your commandments, which I love, and I will meditate on your statutes. Verse 97, oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. 
Or verse 148, my eyes anticipate the night watches that I may meditate on your words. Over and over again, and there are many more verses in in Psalm 119 that describe this process, either using the word meditate or other synonyms to describe this process. This is not just a reading of Scripture. This is a pondering. This is a going deep. This is a rumination on the text of Scripture. This is when Scripture not only comes in our mouths and out again, this is when Scripture comes to have its dwelling in our minds, the very Word of God. And we wrestle with it, and as J.I. Packer said, sometimes we, we even are led to argue with ourselves, to preach to ourselves, to believe what the text says, to, to, to not lose hope, to not give in to the world, to not, to not listen to the, the voices of the culture. In the New Testament, you find similar descriptions, but with different terminology. For example, in Romans chapter 8, verses 5 and 6, we read this critical description of the two categories of mankind. Romans 8, 5 to 6 says this, For those who are according to the flesh, Paul is speaking here of the unregenerate man, those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, But those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For the mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the Spirit is life and peace. In that context, Paul is is, is distinguishing between these two fundamental categories. You are either one or the other. You're not in between. You're not in both. You're one or the other. You're either of the flesh Or you have the Spirit. And how do you know? Well, you look at what's happening in your life. If you're of the flesh, you meditate on fleshly things. Everyone meditates. We all know what it is to ponder. And if you're of the flesh, your meditation is is focused on the things of this world. You love this world. You love its ways. You love what it offers. You love its values. You love its materials. You love its pleasures. And if you're of the flesh, that is what your mind meditates upon. But if you're of the Spirit, Paul says, you'll notice this distinction. Those who are of the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. They're heavenly minded. Their thoughts now have changed. And now what fills their thoughts increasingly are the things that God has revealed. Here we have the, the verb to set one's mind on. It's the Greek verb phraneo. It means to give careful consideration to something. We find the same verb in Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, specifically in verse 2. Here Paul says to the Colossians these words. He says, therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, and, and he uses this this kind of construction, this conditional sentence to say, and you are, if you have been raised up with Christ, and you are, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind. There's that same verb that we saw in Romans chapter 8. Set your mind on the things above. Meditate on those things, not on the things that are on this earth. 
course, the key text here when we talk about biblical meditation is one familiar to us, and I want to spend a little bit more time with this one. Philippians chapter 4, verse 8. As Paul draws his letter to the Philippians to a close, he gives them some final exhortations. And here in a, in a very short paragraph of verses 8 and 9, he gives this statement, and it is so very important for us, as it has been for Christians throughout all the church's history. Paul says this, Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence, and if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. He uses here the verb to dwell. It's different than phreneo, which we saw in Colossians chapter 3, verse 2, and Romans chapter 8. It's, it's the verb logizomai, the verb from which we derive the English word logic. Logizomai. And this verb here, in this kind of a context, it has this definition. It means to give careful thought to a matter. And so it's, it's synonymous with our translations to ponder or to dwell upon. To give careful thought. Not superficial thought. Not temporary thought. Not momentary thought. Not careless thought. But to give careful thought. That is the biblical discipline of meditation. And by virtue of the fact that Paul commands this of the Philippians, commanded it of the Colossians as well and the Romans, indicates what we all know is that this does not come naturally. To set our minds on these kinds of things does not come naturally. We all know, even looking back over today, how easy it is to meditate on the things of this world. There's no instruction manual needed for that. We just do it. We, we, we drive in our cars on the freeway or we have a few moments where we take a break, have our lunch break. Or when we lie down at night and we just let our minds wander and they just gravitate to meditate, to dwell upon the things of this world, whether neutral or even evil. And so Paul commands Christians here and he commands us, and this is so critical to us as men, he says, you must dwell upon the right things. You must pay careful attention. Now, he gives it as a present tense imperative, meaning this is not just a once in a while kind of activity. It's not something you do on the Lord's Day only. This is to, to mark and characterize your entire life. This is the Christian life. There's no other way. This is what the Christian life looks like. And what are we to focus on? And what Paul does is he gives us six direct characteristics and then two summary qualities. Let's quickly go through these. It's important to understand each of these so that we can set up for ourselves a, a, a framework, a, 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 a litmus test to know whether our meditation is of God or not on the things of the Spirit or on the things of this world. First of all, he says... We are to dwell upon, we are to ponder that which is true. We've already looked at the concept of truth. 
we've defined it, and remember how we defined it. What is true? Truth is that which pertains, that which corresponds to reality, but not reality as we define it, not reality as the world defines it, but reality as God defines it. That's what's true. And so the first characteristic here is that our thoughts must correspond to that which God says is true. This heads the list because this is so very critical. Again, think over your thought life. How many thoughts enter your mind every day that do not correspond to reality as God has defined it? Thoughts of self-pity, for example. Woe is me. Such a rotten life. That is of the world, and, and that is of the world because if you are in Christ, you have a blessed life. Not a rotten life. But again, Paul says, dwell upon that which is true. Dwell upon that which corresponds to reality, not as your flesh dictates, not as the world dictates, but truth as it corresponds to God. Secondly, he says that which is honorable. This word honorable refers to that which evokes special respect, that which is noble and dignified. It's a quality that is that is required of deacon candidates and older men. If you look at 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 10, and Titus chapter 2, verse 2, this is, this is the epitome of maturity, that which is honorable. But again, men, let me ask this question. If they would devise a way to connect you to a computer screen with a cord coming out of the back of your brainstem, so that on that computer screen it would show your thoughts Would they be honorable? Would they attract special request? Paul says, you must meditate on those kinds of things. Number three, he says that which is right. The word for right there refers to that which is obligatory in view of justice, God's justice. Again, this is not defined by our world's warped view of justice. This is defined by the very character of God, God's standard of righteousness. Do your thoughts correspond and are they focused on that which is righteous according to God's standards? Number four, pure. The word here means also holy. It was a term that was used to describe the kind of sacrificial quality that God required of the the, the sacrifices in the Old Testament. They had to be pure. They had to be holy. Set apart. Not mundane. Not profane. Are your thoughts focused? Do they live up to the standard of this kind of purity? Lovely. This word refers to the, the causing of pleasure or delight in such a way that they are pleasing and agreeable and amiable. And, and Paul says, to, 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 to meditate biblically in a way that is of God, in a way that leads to transformation by the renewal of your mind, it means that your mind is, is entertaining these kinds of thoughts, lovely thoughts. Thoughts of good repute. The word refers to that which is praiseworthy or commendable, that which wins that wins the, the attraction of others. And Paul says, 
If you're to be transformed by the renewing of your mind, your mind will dwell upon upon that which is of good repute. And then at the near the end of this verse, he then includes two summary qualities. He, he after listing those six qualities, the, those six objects of meditation, he, he then gives these two final statements. He, he says this in, in verse eight: "If there is any excellence, if there is any excellence, and that word for excellence is used by Peter, for example." In First Peter chapter two verse nine and Second Peter chapter one verse three, to describe God, He is the God of excellence, and Paul commands us here to set our minds on to to think carefully about these kinds of excellencies. And then, secondly, the second summary qualification is that if he says in verse eight, if there is anything worthy of praise. Worthy of praise. Anything that, 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 that you think upon that is praiseworthy. That is worthy of esteem. Of making much of. And, and Paul commands us through this as he commanded the Philippians. That our minds are to think carefully about these kinds of things. So if you'd step back for just a moment and consider your thought life. Use this verse, verse 8 of Philippians 4, as the grid. If you want to know whether you're being renewed, whether you're in the process of a robust transformation, then you'll look at this list and you'll be able to answer the question, what is my mind focused on? You'll be able to answer the question this way. Well, my mind is increasingly focused on that which is true, honorable, right, pure, lovely, of good repute, excellent, and worthy of praise. But let me tell you that if you ask yourself the question, what am I thinking about? What am I dwelling upon? And the answer to that question is nothing like what this list prescribes. I can tell you what. The, the process of sanctification, the process of transformation is, is going to go extremely slow and perhaps it's indicative of the fact that you're not even renewed at all. You're not even of the Spirit. So I want you to think of your, your minds here, men. And I want you to understand this, and, and some of you will, will confess this. You'll, you'll confess the fact that you, you struggle with some of these, these worldly things in your mind. You struggle with lust and anger and envy and materialism. You want more and more. You can't get your mind off money. You struggle with drugs and alcohol or whatever. And you know it's not right. And you say, I I just don't know what to do. Well, Paul gives the instruction here. Well, if you're in Christ, if you're in Christ, truly one of His, The bondage to sin has been ended. You don't need to think those thoughts anymore. You need to know that. You do not need to think those thoughts. And instead, what you need to do is the most fundamental response is to commit yourself to obeying Philippians 4 verse 8. To dwelling carefully. From the moment you get up in the morning to the moment you go to bed. To dwelling carefully upon that which is true, honorable, right, pure, lovely, of good repute, excellent, and worthy of praise. It means that as you go throughout the day, you have this list handy. 
whether it's because you've memorized it, or perhaps you have it on a note card, you you have it there in the car, or you have it there in the office, or you have it there on the the mirror, or you have it there at home in your your study, on your desk. And every time a thought comes to you, you ask yourself the question, okay, is this right? Does this correspond with reality? Is this worthy of admiration? And so on and so forth. God has given us the recipe for our part in the process of transformation, and that is to fill our minds with these things, not simply to read them, not simply to be aware of them, but to ponder, to go deep, to spend time throughout the day focusing on these things, and as a result, we will be transformed. So how do we respond to this? What are some practical things to do in light of this? Let me give you six principles that come from this biblical teaching on meditation. Where do we go from here? Well, number one, uh, recognize this. The, the issue isn't whether you meditate or not. Like I said, you, you do meditate. The issue is going to be what you meditate upon. And, and so Thomas Manton brings this out, and, and he says this. He says, by nature, we shun holy meditation. To meditate on worldly, secular things, even if it were all day, we can do without any diversion. It's interesting. You know, we can meditate on worldly things and no one will ever distract us. We're, we're so focused on it. So easy. We can do, do it without any diversion, Manton says. But to have our thoughts fixed on God... How hard do we find it? How do our hearts quarrel with this duty? Satan does what he can to hinder this duty. He is the enemy of meditation. The devil cares not how much we hear nor how little we meditate, end quote. But he does care about how much we meditate upon the right thing. So first of all, number one, commit to read the Scriptures. Commit to read the Scriptures. Dwelling upon the things which are true and honorable and right, pure, lovely, of good repute, excellent and worthy of praise, that will not be possible if there is no intake of those things. Jerry Bridges put it this way, it is vain to pray for an increase in the fear of God on our hearts without meditating on the passages of Scripture that are particularly suited to stimulate that fear. So let me ask you, how is your reading? How is your reading? And you know, we all know this to one degree or another, but it's illustrated time and time again. A man will come to me and he'll say, I'm struggling with this massive sin. I, I, I need help. It's ugly. It's horrible. And I'll ask, well, are you reading Scripture? Tell me about your reading of Scripture. And inevitably... In most cases, there's kind of a pause and looking down and says, well, I haven't been doing that really well lately. Well, yeah. What do you expect? Right? If you don't take it in, it's not going to be there when the moment of temptation comes. So how is your reading? And this is the beauty of the power of the gospel. As I said, God has 
through regeneration, freed us from the power of sin. We do not need to think the world's thoughts any longer. And it means that as He's freed us to that power, He has energized us to take the truth of God's Word and He's promised us His Spirit to abide with us, to take that Word and to, to, to wrap it into every fiber of our being. And it all starts with, with reading Scripture. How's your reading? William Bridge, another Puritan, said it this way, if you would carry on the work of meditation in such a way as may be done with sweetness, be sure that it be bounded with Scripture, and let nothing all within the compass of your meditation but what falls within the compass of Scripture. That's where it begins. How's your reading? Number two, take time to ponder. In other cases, when men will come and confess that they're struggling with this besetting sin, and they're looking for, for some way of, of, of mortifi- mortifying it, even those who might read, you ask the next question, it is, well, how much time do you spend actually meditating upon the excellencies of God? Where you actually tune out everything else and let your mind ponder what does that look like? And again, the inevitable response is, well, it's not, not doing so well. And certainly there is within the nature of sin this vicious cycle. We let our guard down. We, we, lose, we, we hold off or we loosen up a little bit in our meditation on, on these things, on the good things, the true things, the right things. And And sin begins to knock at the door and we begin to stumble here and there. And and that, of course, then leads us to think more about the sin. And and then soon we find ourselves completely out of the process of pondering. Well, the command here is to take time to ponder. If you're struggling with sin and you're in Christ and all of us are different levels in this struggle, all of us have different kinds of struggle, but what is key to the battle is the time in pondering. Not the superficial trying to read the Bible as you're brushing your teeth and making a cup of coffee. Not just plastering a verse here and there around your house to the point where you forget that they're even there. But time to ponder, where you shut out the rest of this this world and you Focus your mind on Scripture, on the truth of God. Meditation is digesting. It is not merely eating. In fact, I like what Donald Whitney says as he describes the process of meditation. He describes it this way. Hearing God's Word, in other words, just reading it or hearing it even from a sermon. Hearing God's Word is like one dip of the tea bag into the cup. Some of the tea's flavor is absorbed by the water, but not as much as would occur with a more thorough soaking of the bag. Meditation is like immersing the bag completely and letting it steep until all the rich flavor has been extracted. You could put it this way. If you're not into tea, then it's a coffee and you make your French press and you leave it there for an hour and then you drink. That's strong coffee. And that's exactly what we need in in pondering the truth of God. That long-term exposure. Where we set aside all the distractions and we allow the Word of God to, to seep into the different cracks and corners of our lives. 
shedding light on those otherwise dark areas, bringing conviction to certain areas which we like to keep hidden, that takes time. Number three, recognize the means. So as we consider meditation, where will, where will those means for meditation come by which we can intake the, the Word of God? Where will we be able to receive that which is true, honorable, right, pure, lovely, of good repute, excellent, and worthy of praise? And th- these things are going to come to you by various means. And one of the ways that you can shortchange yourself is to think that the only way that you can meditate is if you are in the quiet of your own room with the Bible open, and certainly that is the best, without question. But in addition to that personal study, that time in the Word, where you're reading, rereading, prayerfully reading, reading it again, asking questions of the text, praying through it, all these different means to unlock the meaning, to understand it, and to see it applied to your life. In addition to that, there are other things where you have opportunities to meditate. For example, during a sermon. How easy it is when we're here on Sunday mornings or in a fellowship group and the preacher is going on. And we sit down and we say, okay, good, now I can let my mind think about whatever. And we miss the precious opportunity to meditate. As we hear the Word of God preached to us, that is a great opportunity for us, even in that moment, to take that truth and, and, and to converse with, the, with God and, and to preach it to ourselves and to wrap it into every fiber of our being. And, and many of us need to take time just to take a course on how to listen to a sermon. Or through singing hymns, we, we can be singing a hymn, we know the hymns, but there can be a truth that is there in, in the page and it comes to us in the music and, and it, it grasps us. Don't let that go by. Dwell upon it. Even if the, the song goes on, but there's a truth there that again appears fresh and is exactly what you need for that moment. Dwell upon it. Let your heart be filled with that truth. Don't miss the opportunity. Participating in Bible studies. These are, this is why Bible studies are so good. Not the kind of Bible studies where everybody goes around and shares their ignorance. But where there is the actual communication of truth. And you, you sit there and you hear mature believers and growing believers, they, they're talking about the actual meaning of the text and what is revealed there, and, and, you, and you're hearing it and you take that opportunity as you're sitting there to say, okay, how does this change my thinking? How does this change my convictions? How does this change the way I relate to my wife? How does this change the way that I work? How does this change the way that I, I, I view entertainment and my retirement? And you, you go on and list all of that in your mind by reading books on doctrine. All of these are means that that you have, opportunities to to meditate. Number four, in the process of meditation, include God's works. The, the, The psalmists speak not only of meditating on the words of God, but on His works. For example, Psalm 77 verses 11 and 12, we read this already. The psalmist said, I shall remember the deeds of the Lord. Surely I will remember... Your wonders of old. I will meditate on all your work and muse on all your deeds. Now, of course, 
as we ponder these works of God, we do so through the, the grid of Scripture to make sure that as we observe these things in the world or in providence in our lives, that we're understanding them correctly. So we need the Scriptures to do that. But those works of God, that that divine regeneration that he has brought to you, those wonderful times of preservation when he has preserved you in the midst of trials and he's led you through sickness and illness, when he's preserved your marriage, when he's saved your child, all these different things become wonderful objects of meditation. And how blessed it is at regular times to think back in our lives, and to remember how we were once lost, but now found. And to meditate on those precious moments where for the first time, the gospel made sense and Jesus was beautiful. Part of this doctrine of meditation is this very important discipline of remembering. All these providential acts of God. Remembering. Meditating. Even when you observe the creation, there is a wonderful opportunity there to join in declaring the greatness of God. Of standing in awe and and considering just how great and excellent and perfect our Creator is. Number five, redeem the time. Redeem the time. Now, what is interesting when you look at the Puritans' teaching on meditation is that they distinguish between two kinds of meditation. The Puritans spoke of deliberate meditation. That is the kind of meditation that that is regular, planned, and lengthy. It's the kind of meditation that takes place there with our Bibles open in the regular schedule of our days as we have built this into our agendas. That whether morning or evening or midday, we have a planned time and we are, we are focused on Scripture, we're reading Scripture, we're, we're ruminating and digesting. That is what the Puritans would call deliberate meditation. But there is also something called occasional meditation. It is meditation that is sudden, unplanned, short, spontaneous. And so... This kind of meditation, the Puritans taught, was was the kind of meditation that would just spring up in the moment. You weren't expecting it, and the unalert Christian wouldn't miss it. But for the growing Christian who's being robustly transformed, there is this vigilance to seize these moments and to meditate. So it's during your commute times. You're sent to some job somewhere and you have half an hour in the, on the freeway or you're stuck in traffic and rather than grumbling about the, the people around you, you use it to meditate on Scripture. Or you're standing in line and you can't do anything, you're waiting. You're at the DMV and you're waiting. And rather than grumbling at the DMV or rather than looking at all the other people around you and judging them, You meditate. You seize the moment. You start thinking about that which is true and that which is right and that which is honorable, that which is worthy of of repute and that which is excellent and praiseworthy. When you lie down to take a break, an unexpected moment of rest, 
instead of just turning on the television or looking on social media, you seize the opportunity. You know you need this. You're struggling with some temptation, and you know that if you let up for just a moment, you'll be weaker, and so you seize that moment and say, aha, a divinely ordained moment by providence to have my mind reoriented once again to the truth of God, to the promises of the gospel, to His goodness to me in Christ Jesus. I like what Thomas Manton said when he said this, a Christian by a divine chemistry can extract golden meditations from the various earthly objects he beholds. We become good at this with time. Number six, aim for change. Meditation that does not affect change is not meditation. In other words, meditation is not just so that you know all the proof texts, so that you know where they're found, so that you can argue with someone about some particular doctrine. That's not meditation. In fact, meditation is not simply memorization if all you're doing it is is so that you can say you did it. No, meditation is all driving toward an aim. And we can look at James 1, 22 to 25, and, and that aim is to be the effectual doer, and not even simply to be the effectual doer for doer's sake, but it is that implanted word which brings about obedience, which then conforms us to the likeness of Jesus Christ. That's what we're aiming for. That's why we do this. We want him to be the firstborn among many brethren. And so we want to be just like our older brother. We want to reflect his qualities, characteristics. It's not just about knowing stuff. It's about being like him. And as John Owen said, the mind or understanding is the leading faculty of the soul and what it fixes on the will and the affections run after. In other words, if we get our minds focused on the right thing and we begin ruminating on that, it's just a matter of time. It won't happen immediately, but it's a matter of time. And all of a sudden, along comes the affections and along comes the will. Richard Sibbs said this, he said, This meditation is a serious act of the Spirit in the inwards of the soul, whose object is spiritual, whose affection is a provoked appetite to practice holy things, a kindling in us of the love of God, a zeal toward His truth, a healing of our benumbed hearts. Well, as we close, I I want to say this. If you are of the flesh and not of the Spirit, if you have not experienced new life, if you are not a new creature in Christ, it doesn't matter what you do in trying to get your mind under control. You can attempt all kinds of efforts at at trying to harness your thoughts and to think positive thoughts and, and to try and bring some kind of, of, of peace to your world, let me just tell you, it won't work or it certainly won't work eternally. So if you're not in Christ, none of this so far has applied to you. If you're not in Christ, the thing that is essential for you is to become a new creature. And you might say, well, how do I do that? How do I, I gain this ability How can I actually exercise my mind this way? And actually the answer is very simple. Jesus said, come to me, all you who are 
weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Paul said in Romans chapter 10, call upon the name of the Lord and you will be saved. That's what you need to do. To look to Jesus Christ as the solution to your problems. The eternal solution. The solution that brings peace with God. The solution that brings hope of eternal life. The solution that then enables you to know Jesus Christ. To walk with Him. And to be transformed into His likeness. If you do not know that gospel and those promises... Do not leave tonight. Find one of the group leaders. Come to the front afterwards and talk with someone. We'd love to talk to you about the promises of the gospel. Jesus says, come to me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are thankful for the instruction of your word. Which gives us exactly that which we need. Over and over again we come to this Word and it gives the truth right to us, to our hearts. And this teaching on Philippians 4 verse 8 is so very needed for us today. And I pray for our men here tonight, those who are in Christ, that this teaching would would result in practice. There would be a new desire to read and to read more and better. A new desire to ponder, to dig deep, to steep in your word. And a new desire to seize opportunities that they've never considered before. To to have their minds focused on that which is true and right and noble. And I pray that that would then lead to amazing transformation, that they would see this incredible process kick into high gear as as they see sin resisted and mortified in their lives and the virtue of Christ enabled and grown more and more. And I pray for those who are here tonight who do not know this mind of Christ I pray that you would bring them the opposite of peace. I pray you'd bring them trouble and hardship so that they would see no other solution in this world except Christ. And that you would draw them through that hardship to embrace Christ and then unleash upon them the same blessings that you have unleashed upon us. And we ask this ultimately that Jesus Christ, the one who died for our sins, and the one who lives to make intercession for us, the one who is our Savior and Redeemer, that He would be glorified. We pray this in His name. Amen.